Were you a part of the big shift that happened last year with water bottles? Were you part of this? Were you part of this? Where everyone had hydro flasks, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, poof, Stanley cups, as Brianna drinks out of her Stanley cup, and Matea drinks out of her Stanley cup. As I say these things, you speak out, you, uh, you drink out of your Stanley cup. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happened. I just know that everyone had hydro flasks, and when I was in high school, that was really cool. Um, and they were all like 50 bucks, and it was crazy. I was like, I'm not paying 50 bucks for a water bottle. And then everyone did it. And then all of a sudden, this last year, with the female population, Stanleys have been cool. And I say that because, look, guys know. Guys don't really drink out of straws, right? You don't draw straws. Straws are for girls, right? So that's totally fine. I mean, I know you can drink more water that way, and it's more, like, efficient. And the straws on the Stanleys are really big straws, so a lot of water comes out when you drink. I get it. I get this probably better. Um, but I just can't bring my – my wife bought me a Stanley, and I told her to return it. <laughs> oh, that's probably bad, but um, she got me a Yeti instead. I feel like that's the manly version. I mean, you got the Yeti and the Stanley, right? Yeah. Also, I love telling girls, like, you know what the Stanley Cup is? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's like the thing that, you know, it's the – it's, yeah, exactly. It's hockey, right? If, I, if you say the phrase Stanley Cup, it, what you should think of is hockey, not the uh, bear with wings uh, on your water bottle. But that's okay. Anyway, I think one of the reasons people shifted over, besides the straw, is the fact that it's just a lot easier to clean. I don't know about you, but if you've had hydroflasks in the past, I know for myself, there can get this level of grime. If you don't, like, clean out the lid really well and, like, take the liner out and scrub in on the inside, you know, there can be a certain level of, like, mildew that builds up. And, you know, that's gross. Nobody wants to drink out of a, a, a cup that tastes mildewy. The other day, Eden drank out of a cup. And we're like, why doesn't she want to drink her water? What's wrong? And we didn't know that we didn't clean it. It was, like, one of her sippy cups. And we open it up and just, like, smells all mildewy. So we're like, oh. Sorry, Eden. Um, but we get it. Like, when I look at my hydro flasks, now maybe you have a lot of them sitting in your cupboard somewhere. You guys have a cupboard that's just, you know, just your old water bottles and things like that. Here's the problem. If you've got a water bottle that smells like mildew, it's pretty much good for nothing, right? I mean, it's not good to be used for what it was intended. I mean, maybe you could put, you know, cold something else in there, but not, nothing that you want to eat or drink because if it's dirty and you can't get it cleaned out, it's a problem, right? It could be a paperweight, it could be, um, you could use it as a blunt force object if someone breaks into your house. Maybe you can hit someone over the head with your hydro flask. But there's not much good a dirty hydro flask is. Now, with that picture in mind, I want you to remember what God's word has to say to people who want to be used by God. God's word has some things to say for you. If you're a person who's a Christian and you say, I want to do things for the Lord. I want to serve him in many ways. I want to... Uh, sacrifice for him, like we talked about last week. I really want to show love to other people. I really want to do that. Well, there's some things that we can do, even as Christians that we're warned against in Scripture, that make us unfit for any good work. In 2 Timothy 2, which is not our passage, but in 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy, who's a young pastor, he says, I want you to run away from and flee youthful passions. Now, there's not a big definition there, but I think in our text today, we get a definition of what he's talking about. The things that young Christians, especially in all Christians, but if you want to be used by God, things that you have to stay away from and stay clean from. I want you to grab your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me to see this. This is an important and a powerful text, and I hope that it's a life-changing one for many of you today. I hope that this sermon will completely change the way you look at this particular sin that we're going to talk about today. And a couple sins, not just one. This all comes in the context of Paul telling these Ephesians that they need to walk in love, which we defined last week as 
as a Christian, we want to do what we do for others out of a genuine care for them. If something's going to be loving and caring for them, I want to step up and do it, right? That's the mentality of walking in love. Even the good things we do, we want to do them with a heart that loves. Well, now in Ephesians 5, 3, he gives the other side of love. In fact, kind of it's the, the perverted side of love, the, the side of love that some people say, well, I'm loving people by doing what I'm doing. And Paul says, if you're doing this, you're really not loving the people that you think. Look at this. Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. One translation says, there must not even be a hint of it in your life. You can't, can't even smell any mildew in the hydroflask. There shouldn't even be a smell of mildew. I don't know how you feel about drinking out of a hydroflask, but I don't want even a hint of that when I drink out of a hydroflask. Here's what Paul says. As a Christian, if that's you, there needs to be not even a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. Sexual immorality, let's define what that means. That's very important. That's going to be basically going to define what this sermon is about for us. Sexual immorality is the concept of anything that is done sexually that is not inside the bounds where God says it's appropriate, right? Because here's one truth that everyone needs to know, and this is a good theological truth. Um, sex is a good thing. God made sex. In fact, just about all of you have some kind of sexual drive, and God can use that for his glory in the context of a marriage. So the reality is that God does not say, hey, sex is bad. It's not what he's saying. But here's what is very bad. Sexual immorality. Sex outside of the boundaries that God permits. Inside, it's great. Outside, it's destructive. What is sexual immorality? It's anything sexual outside the bonds of marriage. So let's say you got two people who are married to one another. If they're doing sexual things with other people, that's outside of their marriage. That's sexual immorality. We technically call that adultery. Right? Uh, if you got two people that aren't married yet who are doing anything sexual together well, then that's categorized as sexual immorality. Because even though those people could get married or might get married one day, they're not married, and they're not in the covenant of marriage. So God says that's out of bounds. Even what's common today, which, by the way, this word, sexual immorality, um, we, you don't know Greek very well, but um, you probably know this word when I say it. The word is porneia. It's the term that you know, um, for pornography and porn, they got that from this word in the Bible. Think about that. The reason it's called that is because there's a word in the Bible that talks about sexual immorality, and when they're trying to come up with words to describe what that stuff is, they're like, let's just use the Bible word, pornea, pornography. That's a problem for high school students today. The stats are off the charts, over 80% of high school boys admit to watching pornography. That's just the ones who admit it. Now it's rising uh, somewhere around 50 or 60% of high school girls in our country admit to watching pornography. Uh, so this text is a big deal for us. Because he says sexual immorality and all impurity, which is a blanket term to talk about um, things that are, are disgusting and gross, right? Um, things that are out of bounds, and then covetousness, that's a different kind of sin, but a lot of people, because they see it connected to sexual immorality, they think it's a greedy kind of uh, sexual desire, like a desire to have what I can't have, right? Uh, coveting, that means to be greedy, to want what you can't have. Um, an insatiable 
unsatisfiable urge to get what I want, whether it be something sexual or whether it be something you think is not as big of a deal, like getting a bunch of money or getting a bunch of fame. There are people who are covetous, not just of sexual stuff. There's people that are covetous of a lot of things. And he says, look, as a Christian, this can't even, there can't even be a whiff or a hint. You can't open the hydroflask and even smell any mildew. It's like it needs to be gone. It needs to be clean. Why? He says, as is proper among saints, which is just should be obvious to us, but it's a good thing for us to remember that God calls Christians, if you're a Christian, God calls you a saint, a holy one. And he calls you to live like a saint. You can't be a forgiven person and go to heaven one day and think, well, I don't have to live like a person going to heaven. Right? Well, yes, you do. That's what God calls you. If you're a Christian now, it's time for us to live like a person going to heaven. Look at verse 4. He goes beyond just doing a bunch of bad stuff to just talking a bunch of bad stuff. Verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Same idea. If you're a Christian, that stuff is out of place. Filthiness is a, another broad term to talk about. Talking about things that are, that are immoral. Right? Foolish talk is literally two words in the original language smashed together. The first word is moron, and the second word is logos, which means word. Moron words, stupid words. Right? He says, look, as a Christian, you should just be done with the stupid words. What are stupid words? Well, there are scholars who look at that word in, in extra-biblical writings. One of the places they find it is in, like, the drinking parties and the banquets. You can imagine, you know, these uh, Romans and Greeks have these big banquets, and they all get super drunk. What kind of things do guys talk about when they get super drunk? Right? Moron words, stupid words. He says, as a Christian, that kind of, like, relaxed, stupid word, just you need to be done with those. We're not even talking about profanity here. We're just talking about just dumb talking. He says... Let that be done. And crude joking, which actually the ancient Greeks and Romans, that word was not a bad word for them. It actually just means to be nimble or like um, quick. It's a reference to your tongue. So uh, to have a quick tongue, what does that mean? Well, it means you're like, you know, witty and smart and funny and, you know, you got a quick wit. Uh, that's what he's talking about. So is he saying you can't be funny? Is he saying you can't make a joke? That's not what he's saying. That's why our translators say crude joking, because in the context, it's taking something that's fine and turning it into a sexual joke or making it dirty, right? That's the quick-wittedness that he's talking about. So as a Christian, can you be a funny person? Yes. Can you be a smart person? Yes. Uh, do you have to, you know, be citing Bible verses all the time? No, that, that's not what he's saying to say avoid foolish talk. He's just saying stop talking like a drunk moron. That's one of them, and stop making everything a dirty joke. That's the quick-wittedness he's talking about. And even some of us who are Christians are guilty of those two things. They all fall into the category of filthy talk, which are out of place. What should there be instead? But instead, let there be thanksgiving. There are words that God expects us to say, and there are words that God expects us not to say, obviously, right? Verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, which... The Bible says it, you should believe it, but I bet a lot of us right now don't believe what he's about to say. So don't take this with a grain of salt. Take this as the word of God. Take this as absolute. This is what God says, right? We haven't read it, so we're going to read it right now. Look what God says. You may be sure of this. That everyone who is, and by is we're talking about practicing and dominated by these things, sexually immoral, or impure, or covetous, that is an idolater. And he says, look, if you're a greedy person, 
and you've got this hardcore desire to have what you can't have, whether it be money, fame, status, or sexual things. If that defines you, that's who you are, really, at, at the core of it, says, look what he says, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. This Bible verse is extremely clear. If your life is dominated by greed, if your life is dominated by sexual sin, then you have no way to say, oh, I'm a Christian. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't be bold about a profession of faith if you're dominated by these sins. That's why I even like where he talks about sexual immorality. Then he goes to everyone who is sexually immoral, right? There's a, now it's like you become these sins because you've been practicing them so much, right? He's not saying if you've ever done these things, we're gonna talk about that later, right? you can be forgiven of these things, but if this is the pattern of your life, you need to say, well, then that means I am not a Christian. And some of us have not been humble enough to admit that. Is it possible for you to be a person who thinks they're in, maybe like these, some of these Christians in the church who thought they were in with God, but their life showed without any heart radar on them. It's just their life that showed. Well, you, they're not in with God. Verse number six. And you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, but, but God loves me unconditionally and I'm, I'm in. And, you know, okay, well, let no one deceive you with empty words. And I love right after that, he says, be careful because there will be people who will want to come and pat you on the back and say, no, I mean, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's okay. I mean, everyone sins a little bit, right? Well, be careful. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There will be people who will tell you this. You can continue doing your sin, and that's just fine because you're forgiven. Paul talks about that in Romans 6. He says, there are some people who say, hey, if God forgives us, there was a crazy argument, but think about this. This is possible. If God forgives us, and God shows the world his graciousness by forgiving us, what if we sin as much as we can so that God, in his grace, will forgive us and be even more famous? Shall we sin more and more that grace would catch up and be even more amazing? Paul says, by no means. That's stupid. And some of us believe that. And maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you say, okay, no, I know I, I, you know, I can see you know, sexual morality and covetousness. I want that out of my life. Right? Well, he says here, don't let someone come along and deceive you and think that it's not a big deal. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You understand that God is going to come and judge this world because of the sin that some of us in this room right now are enslaved to? Like that's, that's why God's gonna come and judge the world because of this kind of sin. Like this is a huge deal, which is why if you're a Christian, you need to make a, a big deal about the sin that's in your heart. It needs to be a big deal, not something that you push to the side and say it's not a big deal. You know, everybody makes mistakes. You need to say, I need to deal with this now. And others of us who are getting honest this morning, maybe you need to get honest this morning about where you stand, and if you are addicted or enslaved to this kind of sin, God's word is pretty clear. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean this, that you need to like fix yourself before you come to God. That's not what he's saying. Right? In fact, it's the very opposite. You need to come to God first, and he'll do the fixing in your life. Right? So I'm not saying you can't come to God. You need to come to God, but that's my whole point. If you are enslaved to sin, this Bible verse is very clear. Verse number five, right? you're not a Christian yet. I want you to write that down for point number one. Um, this is kind of intense, but I want you to admit that slaves to sin are not headed to heaven. I want you to admit that if you're a slave to sin, or you know, it doesn't have to be you, it could be anybody. If you're a slave to sin, 
Sin is your master, and you do what it says. When you're tempted, you don't really fight temptation. You just do whatever your temptation tells you to do. If that describes you, you're enslaved to sin. And this Bible verse could not be more clear. You do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. And you might say, well, can I go to heaven without a kingdom, you know, an inheritance in the kingdom? No, because what he's saying is, he's referencing back earlier in the book, if you remember uh, chapter 2, where Paul said, if you're saved, you've been saved by grace through faith, you're now seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. So this is like a code to go back in the book and say, remember, like you're with Christ even right now. Like spiritually, you're connected to him and you have this inheritance. So there's nobody who's connected to God and has this inheritance who continues to do the sins they used to do, including sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. You could add a lot of other things to the list, but these are just big ones for us. We need to focus on them. You should believe this text, and even if you don't believe this text, let me prove it to you further. Jesus said this in John 8, 34. Write that down, John 8, 34. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, that means ongoing pattern of sin, is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The next verse, he says, it doesn't matter if you're one of Abraham's children. And that was, you know, these Jews thought, oh, well, we're good because, you know, we know God because oh, I can't be a slave to sin. We've never been enslaved to anybody. He says, I don't care who you are. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care what family you come from. You practice sin, you're a slave to sin. But, next verse, this is John eight thirty six. He says, so, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So here's the other opposite truth that's very helpful for us. If you're a Christian, God has set you free. You don't have to sin in those ways anymore. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Paul says in Romans 6, consider yourself dead to sin. Don't serve it anymore. It's over. That doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted. That doesn't even mean there will not be any type of sin in your life ever again. It's just saying this. You're not a slave anymore, so you don't have to do it. In fact, when Christians sin, it's almost worse because you're willingly going back to the slavery that you said you left. And that Jesus says you're free from. But no, I want to go back to my old master. I want to put the chains back on. Uh, God's word is very clear. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Which I want that to be an encouragement to some of you today who think that, man, I've struggled with sin and I'm I'm fighting against sin and I, I trust in Jesus and he's my assurance. But sometimes it's really hard to fight sin. Remember what Jesus says. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. You don't have to sin anymore. You don't have to do it anymore. And if if you look back on your testimony, some of you who are Christians, you can remember when you were a slave to sin, and then you remember not being a slave to sin. And you remember there's a difference. And I can look back on my life and say, wow, that was one of the assurances that although I made all these professions of faith that, oh yeah, I'm saved, that they weren't true because I was still a slave to sin. And it wasn't until I saw freedom from the slavery of sin that I'm like, oh yeah, I can very clearly point back to then and say, that. well, that's when I became a real Christian. That's when God really saved me. The others were just my efforts at trying to be better. But God has to set us free. Listen to this. Write this down. 1 John 3, 9 through 10. This is a famous verse. You've probably heard this before. 1 John 3, 9 to 10. says, no one born of God, so genuine Christian, makes a practice of sinning. There's not this continual habit and enslavement to that sin anymore. They don't do that anymore. For God's seed abides in him, right? It's like putting a seed in the ground and it's growing. You can't deny the presence of God in your life. 
and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So here's what it doesn't say. Hey, if you really try as hard as you can, you can overcome your sin, and then at that point, you'll know that you're saved. It doesn't say that, right? And some of us get that very confused. It doesn't say that. It just says this. If you make a practice of sinning, and there's no victory, and you, and you just can't say no, and you're constantly enslaved to your sin, well, then God's seed, so to speak, is not in you. You're, you're not saved yet. And frankly, if you're realizing that, that's a good sign, because what it probably means is God's drawing you to himself, even in those thoughts, wanting you to repent finally. Listen to this. It says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's how it's obvious, right? I can't read your hearts. And again, you know, however well I know you, I know some of you really well, and others of you not at all, right? Um, so I can't look into your heart and say, okay, you're a Christian or not a Christian. I can't do that. Right? Your friends can't do that. Your parents can't do that. And if people think they can, they can't, right? They can't look at your hearts. But here's what they can look at. And here's what is a pretty obvious sign. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. You could be a righteous-looking person, but if you don't love your brother, that's another evidence that you might be trying to do all the right things, but your heart might not be right yet. God radically changes us when we're saved, so much so to where God's word is very clear, we are not slaves to sin anymore. If you're a Christian, hopefully this verse will encourage you, and, and it might even sound like your testimony. Listen to this. This is Titus 3.3. 3. For while we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, period. So there's a point in time where that was a description of his life, and it was a description of my life, and it was a description of your life. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. It's very important. Some of you think you're a Christian because you decided to be saved one day. It's not true. Right? If you decided it and God didn't save you, then you just had a false profession of faith. You're saved because God decides to save you. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's not about us saying, okay, God, I did really good for a week. Hey, God, I did so good. Can you save me now? That's not how it works. It's not by works done by us in righteousness. So some of you need to give up trying and turn to him. Look what it says next. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's God who saves us. That's a very important concept. And admit that if you're a slave to sin, then you're, you're not saved yet. So many of us have false professions of faith. And I mentioned this earlier, but um, some of us had false professions of faith, and here's why. Because we wanted something from God, right? And we might have even asked for something from God, but we did not give up our sin. I mentioned this at winter camp, but there's a verse, Psalm 66, 18. It's a very quick verse. You can memorize it. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had loved sin and gone to him and said, oh, forgive me of this sin, 
But really deep down, it's like, I love this sin. I want to keep on doing this sin. I want coverage or insurance for this so that I can keep doing it. If that's why you came to God for salvation, it's no wonder that it was a false profession because the God, God's word says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, if I had loved it, cherish means to, to love it and to hold on to it. And if I had done that, well, then the Lord would not have listened. Galatians 5, 19 to 21 is very similar to this. It gives a big, long list of sins. Right? So it's not just sexual sin. Right? You think, whew, I'm in the clear. Right? If, well, no, it goes much beyond that. So sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, outbursts is what it's talking about, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Which, by the way, all those sins, all those sins are still right now being practiced by high school students around you in Orange County. All of those sins, Right? And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's your lifestyle, if you're enslaved to it, if that's what you're all about, you can't claim to be a Christian. Some of you have heard that and wondered, where do we get that from? Where in the Bible? Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Ephesians 5, very clear. Now, you might be asking, well, wait a minute. Does that mean if I've done certain things, I cannot be forgiven, and it's over, and God says you're done? Okay, turn to this passage. I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn to the left in your Bibles real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some of you, even when I bring up these topics, you think, okay, oh, that's the one. Um, yeah, but I'm hopeless. I have no hope. Well, listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Start in verse 9. It says the same idea, but it's, it says it in a rhetorical question. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? It's supposed to be obvious to them. It should be obvious to you. It's not obvious to all of us. Some of us think, oh yeah, you can do unrighteous stuff and you know, never repent and never trust Christ. And you know, yeah, they made a profession of faith when they were a kid. So I mean, that probably means they're saved, right? God's word says, don't you know that the unrighteous, the habitually caught in sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Very important. Some of you hear lies that says you can identify with your sin and still be a Christian. You can make it part of your identity. No, you can't. Why? Because God's word says the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. You can't do it. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Swindlers means, that's a word you don't use very often, people whose whole job is to trick people out of their money. People who are all about taking advantage of other people. It says if, if that's you, just realize there's no inheritance in the kingdom of God for you. You might say, well, I've, I look at that list and I've been greedy in the past and, you know, Drunkards, maybe I've done that in the past, or a swindler. I don't know, maybe I've done that. I haven't committed adultery because I'm not married, but you know, this list is pretty comprehensive. Can I be forgiven? It's a great question. Verse number 11. He turns to the Christians who were sitting there, who would come from a variety of different backgrounds, and he says this, and such were some of you guys. You guys did all that stuff too. This group of Christians, it's not like we're guilt-free from this. This church is comprised of people who committed all these sins in the past. 
But, that's a very important word in this whole text, but there's something different now. But you were washed. God took your sin and he wiped it off your account. You were sanctified. That means put in a new category. Now you're called saints. God calls you a saint now when you don't deserve to be a saint. Right? I don't deserve to be a saint. Paul didn't deserve to be a saint. But God did something. And you were justified. Justified means God puts his stamp of approval on you and says you're righteous now. Even though you didn't earn it. Jesus did it in your place. That's what it means to be justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all involved right there in our salvation, our salvation once again. What's the point? Well, if you're a Christian, this needs to be a past reality for you. And some of you look back and you think, I, it was a past reality. And maybe some of you think, well, am I a second-tier Christian because I did some of these things? God's word says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And here's the point. If you're constantly enslaved to those things and you're living in them, how can you tell God, oh, I've been washed, I've been sanctified, I've been justified? Oh, but it's what my life's all about. You can't. That's the problem. And that's what our text gets at. If you're a Christian, you're called to live a new kind of life. The sins that he lists are not less tempting for Christians. There's st still temptations, right? So here's, here's what I'm also not saying. Hey, once you become a Christian, here's a marker. You'll never be tempted to sin in those ways anymore. I'm not saying that. God's word doesn't say that. What it says is your life is not defined by those things. You're not categorizing. You're not doing all those things all the time. Very important. But back in Ephesians, it says that sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you. We don't even want a hint of it in our life. Now, if you're a Christian, you're not a slave to sin anymore. You are headed for heaven. But this text is actually more for you than it is for the non-Christian. You get that? Because like verse 3 is not written to non-Christians. It's written to Christians. It says, don't even let there be a hint. Verses 5 and 6 are reminders for us that some people who are enslaved to sin, they might think they're right with God, but they're not. So that's why our audience, and as I think of you guys, it's like I know we've got lots of different people who are at different points in their relationship with God. Some of you are, don't know anything about God yet. Right? You're just understanding God for the first time. Others of you grew up in a Christian home, and you're currently in the process of trying to fake everyone out and try to convince everybody that you're a Christian, when the reality is you are a slave to sexual sin. Others of you have repented, and God has changed you, and you're struggling against sin, but you're living a new kind of life. What I'm saying is, this text says, hey, if you're a Christian, don't let there be a hint of this kind of stuff. And if we're going to try to apply that, what I think is, we have a strong enough drive internally, and you do too, right, to do these kinds of sins. Greed is really hard to fight, right? Uh, it's really hard because it seems like everybody else is doing well and everybody else is popular and everybody else is better looking and everybody else is getting what they want so I want that stuff too it's hard to fight that sexual sin really hard to fight because it feels like it's wrapped up in in who we are because you know we're sexual beings that's really hard to fight any kind of sexual sin I think step number one in all this is we need to stop inviting temptation into our life for these things that's point number two stop enticing yourself with greed and sexual sin Stop enticing yourself. Some of us put ourselves in situations, and I'm talking to you Christians. You put yourself in situations where you're like, I want to fight sin. But in the process of even claiming that, 
another godly Christian could point in your life and say, well, look how you're inviting it here, 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 and here. You want to stop being greedy. Okay, but you spend all your time scrolling, 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 looking at what everyone else has and watching all their vacation videos and all of their stuff, and you think you want to fight greed while you're just consuming all that. It's just a bad idea. You're inviting that greed into your life. There's an old story about vampires. I know you guys don't care about vampires, but when I was in high school, vampires were really cool. Uh, There's all those shows being made about vampires and books. You know, Twilight came out, and it was all a big deal. Yeah, all the leaders know, right? That's right. Scarlett, were you into vampires? All right, never mind. I was never into vampires. I can say I was, I was not into that. I was very much into, like, sports and, I mean, golf. Is, I don't know if you want to count that as a sport. But, you know, avoided the vampire phase. But what I do know about vampires is a old legend about vampires uh, that they never break into people's houses. Have you ever heard this? They never break into people's houses. So like you never get home and a vampire's there, you know, sipping coffee out of a little mug at your, you know, house. They don't do that. In all the vampire stories, and I think it's still true um, of all the new ones, that you don't get broken into by a vampire, but what happens is you let vampires in your house. So vampires can come in your house and, you know, fang your neck, um, right, and drink your blood and turn, I turn you into something weird. I don't understand all of it, right? I'm not a vampireologist, right? I don't know. But what I do know is they cannot do that unless you invite them in. That's the story. And that's, I think, actually the moral lesson built into vampires, right? Uh, you invite them in. Anytime someone gets bitten by a vampire in their house, it's because they said, come on in. And that's the whole thing. They dress up nice and they, you know, look nice, just a little bit pale, I guess, very angsty. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of all the Twilight vampires, right? Um, I never watched the movie, so I don't really know. But I know that that vampire is very, like, moody, emo, angsty, like, (laughs) you know? But that girl, right, invited him in. She said, okay, right, angsty boy, like, why don't you, I'll get to know. Like, that's just, yeah. Here's the point. You got to invite vampires in to be uh, fanged in the neck. The reality is, for many of you, you think about fighting these sins. You say, I want to I want, I avoid them. I don't want the consequences of these sins. I don't want to, you know, be not useful for God. I don't want to be enslaved to sin. Okay, step number one. And question number one is, are you inviting that sin into your life? The people you know, through the devices you have, are you feeding the sin? Uh, God's word says something, and again, a lot of you might take pause at this. I just think it's super interesting. I want this to be a complete paradigm shift in the way you think about sexual sin in particular. Angry, but both these sins. God's word does not say you are supposed to fight sexual sin. Kind of an odd topic, right? You think, well, yeah, you're supposed to fight it. The Bible actually doesn't put it in those terms. It doesn't say fight a love of money or fight that type of greed. It doesn't say that. Do you know what it says? A different word. It says flee, run away. Because here's the assumption. You're not strong enough to say no. So you just need to get away from it. Get away from the whole world. Well, Paul said you can't do that. Flee sexual sin. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We were already there, but verse 18, later on in the passage. Remember, he's talking to Christians, and here's what he says. Run away. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from pornea. That's what he says. Because every other sin that a person commits... A a non-sexual sin, they commit that sin outside the body. 
It's kind of an odd topic, right? It's like you're doing something in, out there in the world, but it says the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So th- there's a phrase that's used a lot, and again, I don't mean to pick on people who say this, but I do right now, uh, I guess. There's a line I've heard pastors say, there's a line I've heard Christian authors say, and it's this, that you know, sexual sin is just like any other sin. This says that's not true. Now, the Bible says sexual sin can be forgiven like any other sin. That part's true. But the Bible does not say that sexual sin, it's just like lying. It's, it's just like cheating on tests. It's not. And you know it's not. If, if you are honest about it, you know it's not the same. It's like, okay, well, then stop. Well, I can't. Okay, well, then it's not the same. Because this says it's a sin committed against your own body. Or do you not know, Christians, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Your body doesn't even belong to you. You know, in 1 Corinthians, it's funny. It says, your body belongs to God. That's the end of chapter 6. And then the beginning of chapter 7 says to married people, Oh, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Oh, and by the way, if you're married, it actually belongs to your spouse. So you're third in line for claiming any kind of ownership over your body. God first, your spouse second, you're third, right? And if you're not married, well, great. You're second in line, I suppose, right? But God owns it. That's why, by the way, here's just a quick theology of the body. That's why you're not allowed to hurt yourself. That's why you're not allowed to kill yourself, right? That's why you're not allowed to cut yourself. Why? Because your body doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. You're renting it. You have it for a short amount of time. It doesn't, you didn't make it. It's God's, he owns it. And if you're a Christian, he owns it twice over because he died for it to redeem it. And one day he'll resurrect it, right? So Bible doesn't say, oh yeah, yeah. It's fine to hurt yourself because it's just you. Well, it's not just you. Your body doesn't belong to you. It's God's. I told this illustration to Alliance and um, Alliance is the singles group. And it's kind of an odd illustration, but go with me on this. Um, let's say that, your car breaks down, and you don't have a car, and you're talking to me, and I'm like, hey, you can just use my car for the day. I'll just be with my family. Use it, you know, for the night. I'll just bring it back to church, like, on Tuesday, right? And you're like, great. And uh, you or a boyfriend or girlfriend, you guys go out in my car tonight, right? You go to the Spectrum, or you go to Laguna Beach, or you do whatever you do, okay? Um, I just wonder if you would have the same temptation to commit sexual immorality in my car that you would have in your car. Kind of an odd thought, right? Maybe don't think about it too long, but you probably wouldn't, right? Right? Please tell me right. Yeah, you wouldn't, right? Even if you were tempted to, you'd be like, oh, this is uh, Pastor John's car. Like, that's weird. No. Got to get out of here, right? You probably feel guilty. My present, no, I don't know. My presence would be in the car. No, just kidding. <laughs> Like, no, gross, this is odd, right? I, no. Um, Okay. So, here's what I'm getting at. And I told you, I told this to Alliance, right? Um, It's the same concept he's telling them, it's just heightened. Every time there's sexual sin involved, you're involving God in that. God owns your body, because it's his. Proverbs 7 is a, is a passage written from a father to a son, all about, hey, you are going to be faced with temptation in this world, and here's how you fight it. And he tells this story of, uh, this is a parable, so it's a you know, fictional story, but it could be very true. 
of a young man who's walking throughout this city, and there's a married lady in that town whose husband is away who tries to seduce this guy to have sex with her in her house, right? Uh, so again, this was a story. This didn't technically happen, but I'm sure things like this have happened. Right? And he tells this story all to say to his son, hey, if you're put in the situation where sexual immorality is an option for you, because some of you are like, well, it's not an option for me. Well, praise God, right? Um, but if it's an option, which for this guy, it usually wasn't, but in this moment it was, at the end of all of it, he says, after he goes and commits this sin, verse number 21, this is Proverbs seven twenty-one. he says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him, right? And by the way, this could go the other way around, right, for you ladies, you could be persuaded to do things that you shouldn't by a guy that you might trust. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast in a bushel, till an arrow pierces its liver. And as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. You know, that's usually not what people are thinking before they commit sexual sin. Oh, this will, this will kill me, but it's okay. That you usually don't think that way. Because right? at the moment that you're being dragged into it or seduced into it in whatever form or method this is, you're not thinking right before, oh, this is going to kill me. But God's word says, no, it's, it's like a trap. You don't even know you're walking into a trap. That's why he calls it stupid. Earlier in the chapter before, he says, you know, if you commit adultery, you lack sense. You hate your own life if you do it. Why? Because you're running into a snare. Then he turns to his son, and he says, oh, son, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't stray into her paths. Point is, don't put yourself in the situation where you're going to be tempted. Why? Because God's word is pretty clear. Like, if you think you're strong enough to fight it, God's word doesn't say fight it. It says flee from it, run away from it. The assumption is, guess what? You're not as strong as you think you are, so you just need to not put yourself in the situation. That's true for those of you who commit sexual sin by yourself at your house. Don't put yourself in the situation. There are times when you're isolated or you feel like, oh, it's easier for us to do this. Or you're dating, boyfriend or girlfriend, and you try to go and get somewhere where people aren't going to be. And you know that nobody's going to catch you. And you know that nobody's going to find you and that nobody's going to call you. That's, you're walking straight into the trap. I don't care how godly you think you are. I don't care how strong you think you are. God's word, and from what I have seen, I, I can tell you, you're not as strong as you think you are. It says, for sexual immorality, for many a victim she has laid low, and her slain are a mighty throng. Think about all the people that have been hurt, and all the people that have fallen to this. Take all the people throughout all of human history, every king, every general, every wise person, every smart person, every athlete, every creative musician. Take all the men and women in all of history who have fallen to sexual sin, put them all together. It's a mighty, big, strong group. It's not just the, the, you know, the dumb people or the people who fell for it. Like, it's wise, smart, intelligent people. It's a mighty throng. It's strong people. It's athletic people. It's whatever you think you want to be, they are in this category. He says, in the way of her is the way to the chambers of death. There can even be godly people like David who put himself in the wrong situation. Remember when he committed adultery in 2 Samuel 11? How it all starts is that it was the time when kings would go out to battle. Right? So that's in the springtime because in the winter it rained, just like it does here. Israel, there's two seasons rainy and dry, dry for most of the year. So the kings could go out and fight 
from like March all the way to like November when it started raining. So it's March, springtime. And it says, all of his army, they went out to go fight their battles that they needed to fight, but David stayed at home. And he was in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, the way it was, it was this city built on this hill, and it was like a little staircase. And David's house was at the top, and being there, he could see down at people's houses. It's kind of creepy, but what? what it's the king, right? Um, it's the palace was sitting on the top of the hill. And if he took his binoculars out, right, he could see a lot that's going on down in his city, and he does. And it says, in the time when kings went out to battle, he didn't. He remained in Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch, so what was he doing before? A whole lot of nothing. After a nap, after sleeping, when he's lazy, which by the way, there's a connection in scripture between being off your guard and sexual immorality. Being lazy, not getting your hands busy at work, not doing your schoolwork. There's a connection between the two. And those of you who have fallen into sexual sin, you know there's a connection between the two. David says, he arose from his couch, he was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, and it goes on, and he commits adultery with her, right? Um, he never should have even been in that situation, and my point for you, as wise counsel as I can give you, as your pastor, is don't put yourself in the situations where sexual sin is easy. Just don't put yourself in, like, look, guys, charge your phone s- somewhere else. D- don't keep your phone in your room if it's a problem. Put it, put it in the living room. Just do, get an alarm clock. I bought plenty of guys alarm clocks, because you can't, if you can't have it in your room, you can't have it in your room. If you can't go with a significant other somewhere without the temptation of sexual sin, then do something else with them. Don't go there then. If, 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 if it's so extreme for you and you can't even drive together, well, then, then don't. Like, if you can't avoid it, the Bible says run then. If you're in a relationship where the whole relationship is just built on sexual immorality, I think you know what I'm about to say well, then you shouldn't have the relationship. Pretty clear. Proverbs 6 says, can a man carry fire close to his clothes, his chest, and not burn his clothes? Can he carry it right here? Can you grab fire from the bonfire and hold it really close to your chest because you don't want it blown out and you think that you're not going to burn your chest? He says, can a man walk on hot coals and not be scorched? Like, how smart do you think you are, man? You think that you can do it and everybody else couldn't before you, but you, you're strong enough and you're godly enough and you can? He says, so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Here's what I'm getting at. When it comes to sexual sin, if we don't want a hint, you need to guard your heart. And what that means is having people that you're regularly confessing your sin to, even just sins of the heart. Even if you never look at a screen, even if you never touch somebody, just we're still tempted in our hearts. If your device is a problem, I want you to get accountability on your device or devices. Most people who sin have a particular device or a particular way that they do pornography or sin. You need accountability on that. Ask your parents. I mean, it would be amazing if, if, how many times do you think that happens? When kids go to their parents, instead of getting caught in their sin, going to their parents and saying, I can't handle this right now. Bible says flee sexual sin. But no, you definitely need a phone, though, right? You need your iPhone. You need it with you all the time, though. It wouldn't mean that. Guys, think about it. That was being sarcastic, right? If that's what it took, even if it's not getting rid of the device, even if it's just putting software on it or deleting a certain app or cutting off a relationship, if what God's word is true, well, then 
And for you, if, if you can't handle it, then if you can't handle it, it'd be better for you, as Matthew 5, 27, 28 says, to cut off your hand if it means you're not going to sin with it. Which, of course, don't try to cut off your hand because you'll still sin with your other hand. You cut off that hand, you'll sin with your body. Like, don't worry. Like, you'll keep sinning. The point is, take it seriously. Deal with it. If you have a relationship, here's some very practical advice, but if you have a relationship with a significant other, um, my firm or high suggestion, I, don't, I can't say you have to, but I can almost say yeah, you really should, is you need to have someone that you're talking to about this. Someone who's a trusted friend or, better yet, someone who's married, right? Um, that would be a really good person to talk to if you're a lady. Find a, a married lady to talk to and to hold you accountable. Guys, find a, a married guy to talk to, to hold you accountable in your relationship. I, I, I promise you, you won't regret that. But many of you will regret not listening to what I'm saying right now. So please, listen. That's verse three. Verse number four, we don't have any time for it, but write this down for point number three. Um, he switches from talking about sexual sin and, and, and greed and that stuff to now saying, but what about our conversations? Is it present even in our conversations? Here, here's how I put it for point number three. I want you to stop listening to, laughing at, and repeating filthy words. Because a lot of this starts with words, and, and that's why Paul says it, and that's why God's word is just clear. It starts with our words. Some of us say, well, I'm not committing sexual sins, but um, are you listening to, laughing at, and repeating filthy words? Some of us think, well, I can listen to it and not laugh at it. Okay, well, see how long that lasts for you. Well, I can laugh at it, but not repeat it. Okay, see how long that lasts for you. The principle is it leads to another. Later in our passage, next week, we'll cover it where it says, it's shameful to even speak of the things that some people do in private, which is helpful for us because it's like we we don't even want to be people who are talking about it. We don't want people who are laughing at it. And again, I, I would wonder if your, if your history was exposed and, and what you listened to on Spotify was exposed and your YouTube history was exposed, and if it was all exposed, right, it was just clear what you were taking in, you're probably going to find a connection between what you're taking in and what's coming out. Some of you are thinking, man, why can I grow? I really want to stop saying dirty jokes because I see this and I'm like, yeah, that's me. And I, How do I stop? Well, first step, again, these points are really just the first step. It's not a comprehensive thing, but the first step is just Let's look at what you're listening to. Let's look at what you're reading. Let's look at um, what you're watching, which literally, again, this, this is not very extreme, by the way. Uh, but what I'm saying is some of us need to unfollow, to stop listening to, to replace things that are just, they're just dirty. This whole quick-wittedness in the crude joking, right? It's just taking stuff and making it sexual, right? That's basically most comedians' jobs, right? To take things and to do some, you know, double entendre or innuendo or just like trying to take things that are clean and just like, let's see how dirty we can make them. If you, start, if you hear that and you look in the world, you're going to see it all over the place, right? Even after this sermon, hopefully you're going to see it all over the place. Um, don't let that come into your conversations. It reminds me of a scene from The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you know that book. Um, it's an old book. It came out actually yesterday. 345 years ago. It didn't come out yesterday. Sorry, that was confusing. came out on February 18th, um, 1678. So we're talking about a pretty old book. It was published February 18th. It's just interesting when I was looking it up. In the book, it's an allegory, which means it's a big story that's told from the perspective of this guy, at least the first part, of this guy named Christian who kind of serves as the hero of the story. 
And everywhere he goes, it's like he goes to place after place, and he talks to person after person. And people are named in the book what is descriptive of their character. So he meets a guy named Hopeful, who's, you know, optimistic. And he meets a guy, you know, named Faithful and Greatheart, who are greathearted and who are faithful. He goes to a place, and there's a funny place, and you'll laugh at this because you'll be like, oh, that's where that came from. There's a place in the Pilgrim's Progress called Vanity Fair. You've heard that phrase before, Vanity Fair. You know, you know, magazine and website named after that, right? Vanity Fair. What that place was, was a symbolic representation of all that the world had to offer. And in this scene, Christian and his friends walk through the town, and it, the, the author says, and this is an old town, an ancient town. Even from the first two travelers on earth, Satan set it up and was showing Adam and Eve this thing. And as the world's gotten bigger and more people have been on it, there's more opportunity for sin, so now there's always new things that are being brought up. But really, it's the same old things brought up to every new generation. There's a piece of advice that Christian gets in Vanity Fair that I think would be helpful for you. He says, as they walked through this city and they were being offered all these things to buy, all these sinful pleasures to take part of, he says, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn my eyes from beholding worthless things, from Psalm 119, 37. And they would look upward, signifying that their trade and their traffic, their priorities, were in heaven. If this world is filthy, and I'm saying we need to stay clean, sometimes you will be looked at as a person who is walking through this world with your fingers in your ears and your eyes looking somewhere else. You need to be okay with that. And some of you, very practically, with your ears and with your eyes, you can take that application and just do it today. Things we need to stop listening to. Things we need to stop looking at. Because this is important, and it's important to God. It needs to be important to you. Very simply put, the title of the sermon was No More Filth. If you're a Christian, that needs to be your goal. Let's pray that God would help us do that. God, we're humbled when we think about Proverbs 7 in particular, that those who've fallen to sins like this are a mighty throng, important, powerful, successful people, people we would aspire to be like and look up to who have fallen to sexual sin. And I just ask that you would protect and guard this group. There's so much that could be said, so much damage to these students' future marriages that they don't even consider because of sexual sin, so much temptation for adultery in the future that is fed first by pornography and premarital sex in high school. I just pray that you would give these students wisdom and that you would help them flee and run away and that where they find uh, temptation in their life, if there's something that they just can't handle, I pray that they'd be willing to take the steps that they need to to um, move it out and to overcome sin in your strength. We know they can't do it on their own. We know that without you, we are slaves to sin. I pray that some of us today need to turn to you for the first time and really let go of our sin and not cherish it in our hearts anymore. We know that your word says if we don't cherish sin in our hearts and we call on you and ask you to save and forgive us and wash us, you will wash us, justify us, sanctify us, and cleanse us from our sin. Those of us who are in you, we know that. And we are so thankful for how you've saved us. We pray that that would be the case for many more today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.